0: Well, it is, uh, it is a privilege to be back on campus. I graduated in 1984, uh, so it's been a while. But uh, And, and uh, I actually uh, enjoyed living in the Leffingwell Apartments. Any apartment dwellers? All right, shout out to the long walk to get to chapel this morning. Um, and uh, on the way, we would have to pass the baseball field, of course, back then the baseball field wasn't a baseball field until maintenance went out and put up the snow fence. So you guys have a very, very nice baseball field, and I actually got to play baseball here and, uh, you know, graduated here, as I said, in 84, and it is just an honor to be here and talk about the sanctity of human life. And so I'm going to fly through this because I have a lot to share with you, but I might say some things, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I might want to say, I'm going to say some things you might want to remember. So take out your phones or whatever, if you are old school and write things down, because I'm going to give you a few ways you can talk about life. How many have been in that discussion and it gets awkward and you don't quite yet know what to do, but you know in your heart that life is precious, that it's created in God's image, I want you at the end of our time today to have some tools to be winsome, not argumentative, but winsome and compelling and compassionate with people about why the life position is the right position without slamming those who haven't arrived there yet. Okay, are we in agreement? That's where I'd like to go today. Uh, First, we have to look at the word sanctity. We talk about the sanctity of life. We talk about the sanctity of human life. What are we talking about? What we're talking about is a holiness. A preciousness that's beyond the obvious, perhaps. The saintliness, the godliness. Now, I know when you rolled in here this morning, you maybe weren't feeling real holy, (laughs) real saintly, and real godly. But that's the way you are seen by your creator, by your heavenly father. As you are in Christ, you are covered in Christ's holiness. You are a saint, a priest, a king. There is a godliness that adorns you. And all of human life is at the crowning achievement of all that God has created. There's another definition I wanted to share with you. There's a sacredness or a hallowedness to the character of human life that transcends anything else in all of creation. And I love this invaluable word. That means don't violate it. It is so precious you don't violate it, as in the sanctity of a temple in the definition here. But I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you can uh, believe, you can then talk about the sanctity of human life. And the first is a biblical case, Okay. Um, But then recognizing that not everybody you encounter is going to say, oh, well, if the Bible says so, uh, then I guess I, I should think that way. A lot of people, right, we encounter don't have the same belief in the word of God. But we need to understand that this comes from the word of God. So we're gonna look at a biblical case for the sanctity of human life. And we're also gonna look at a logical case. Logical case, as I said, uh, this is those moments where you need to go outside of scripture perhaps and talk at a uh, secular level about life. You know, There is a real movement right now in the pro-life movement that is called the secular uh, sanctity of human life. Case. And so we're going to look a little bit at that. The secular uh, pro life people have a very interesting argument, and it comes from a logical perspective, a scientific uh, perspective that we'll take a brief uh, fly by here. But then I want to leave you this morning by looking at how Jesus viewed life. What was Jesus' perspective on the sanctity of human life? So that's where we're going. You ready? Get buckled in because I need to move quickly. Uh, First of all, a biblical case for the sanctity of human life. What I'm going to give you right now are the go-tos, the rock solid, the gold standard scriptures about the sanctity of human life. If you're not familiar with these, this is a great place to start. But I will tell you this, you don't have to thumb through very many pages in your Bible to come to a story about life and how God values life and he is redeeming life, human life. Jesus himself, one passage, so it's not on here, in John 10.10 talked about the thief, right? He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. So um, the sanctity of human life is, literally a thread that pulls through all of scripture. But these are the go-tos. Genesis 1:26 and 27 says this. Then God said, so there's this communication, this conversation, if you will, going on in the Trinity. Let's make mankind in our image. And at this point, we have uh, read about everything else being created. You know, the the land and the the sun and the moon and the animals, everything, this is all done. And then he gets to the human creation, the mankind. And this is where God, if you will, gets dirt under his fingernails. He fashions Adam out of the dirt. He forms him in a special way and endows him with a breath of life that's a bit different than any other life that has been created because it bears his image in our likeness. And then we are to rule so that they may rule over the fish and the sea um, and the birds in the sky and the livestock, the wild animals and all the creatures that that move along the ground. This to me is um, a biblical case for hunting (laughs) and fishing uh, and recognizing that, that birds and animals and fish are for us to enjoy. We eat them, but we don't eat people, right? If you've ever heard those stories about how desperate survivalists get, it's always the last resort. We just don't eat people. Our command is that we can eat the created things, but there again is a sacredness, a holiness about people, about human life that we don't violate, So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them. Let me say this about that last phrase. Male and female, he created them. Ladies and gentlemen, abortion is an attack on the image of God for the man and the woman involved in that decision. You, as a woman, bear the image of God in that he is the life giver, Women, you have an incredible gift as a woman to be the one who produces human life, another life inside your life, another body inside your body growing. You are to nurture and to feed and to nurse and then grow a child in the strength and admonition of the Lord. That's a woman's part of a woman's createdness in the image of God. Abortion destroys that. So we can see that time and time again when we talk with women who have made that decision. Part of the deep regret and the struggle is I was supposed to give life, right? Whether she's able to articulate that or not. That's not how it was supposed to be. I made a decision that went against that. And the image of God in you men is that we are to be the defenders of life. We are to be the defenders, the providers, and, um, and, and defend our children, to give them safety, to give them knowledge, and grow them up again in the strength and admonition of the Lord. Abortion cuts into that. Men who have been part of an abortion decision or learn later that their baby was aborted or considering being aborted, it starts to pick away at that idea that that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not how I was created to be. So Genesis 1:26 and 27 is one passage. Jeremiah 1, 5 is another one. This one I love because this is about where life begins. Read this verse. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Can we just stop right there a minute and recognize That Jeremiah's life and your life was conceived in the mind of God before it was ever conceived in your mother's womb. That's deep. God knew you before you were even formed. So this story uh, that President moreno Riano told about this woman, they're struggling with this, I didn't plan on this pregnancy. But thank God they came to understand that God did. Can we just think for a minute about all the times? I don't want to get graphic about it and inappropriate, but all the times that life isn't conceived. Is he sovereign over the womb or not? Every life that is conceived is an idea that existed first in the mind of God. According to this passage, before you were born, I set you apart. So while Jeremiah was being incubated in the womb, um, he was setting him apart. And I can say that's true for you as well. God has a plan for you. You hear that over and over. I hope you hear that here. And what we need to do is discover what that plan is. Here it's announced to Jeremiah, oh no, I knew you before you were conceived in your mother's womb. While you were there, I was making a plan for you and I have a calling on your life and I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That chorus we were singing in that last song, let's go out and and shout it from the mountains, declare it uh, among the masses, I leaned over to your president and I said, that sounds like your mission statement here, to be world changers, to be life changers in the communities where God plants you. Well, the last uh, verse that I would point to as sort of the... um, mark for the sanctity of human life. The, the key verse is in, of course, 139, Psalm 139, and a couple of verses here. David is calling out to the Lord and saying, you are the one who created me. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Turn to someone and say, you are awesome because you are fearfully and, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, that feels a little awkward, doesn't it? But listen, you guys, don't forget that. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, let's say you're encountering someone in a conversation, and and let's say um, you're at a gathering, a social gathering of some sort, and the issue of life or abortion comes up. It's a real conversation killer. Believe me, I've been doing this 23 years and I've been at those gatherings and uh, when people find out what it is that I have been doing with my life and my calling, they're like, "Oh, okay, how about those lions? You know, they want to talk about something else all of a sudden. Um, so if uh, you encounter someone who really does want to have an open dialogue about a case, for the sanctity of human life, for the importance, the crowning achievement that that life is in all of creation. You can do it from a logical perspective. Hopefully, as you do this well, it'll tee up a conversation about a biblical perspective for life as well. But um, this, to unpack this, I have to start out with a little story. So this pro-lifer walks into a bar. That pro-lifer was me Uh, and uh, to be fair, I was in purgatory. I was desperate. Uh, I had been stranded eight hours in the Atlanta airport. Okay, so I've had two meals now, or I'm looking to find my second meal, because this is cancellations and, and uh, flight changes and all of that, so I was there early enough, grabbed some lunch, thought I was getting on a plane, that, that, got, uh, that got canceled, so now I'm pulling out my case, and I'm doing emails, and I'm writing, I did as much work as I could, and then I thought, well, Lord, why do you have me here? I have a friend who always says to me, Jim, God is always in the delays, so here I am, eight hours in the uh, Hatfield, Atlanta uh, airport, and I finally came around to, oh God, maybe you actually have something for me here. But I better get something to eat because I'm hungry again. I got to get on a plane. Last thing I want to do is miss the plane that I'm finally going <laughs> to get on. So I'm looking for a place to eat. Everything's packed. And I step into this restaurant. To the left is the restaurant. and. There's a waiting list, and I'm like, I can't do that. And I look over here, and the, service, or the um, hostess says, well, there's one spot open at the bar. I said, uh, okay, I'll go over there and order food. So I pull up to the bar, and I'm next to Tracy. Next to Tracy is her girlfriend, don't remember her name. And uh, let's just say they had been there quite a while. Are you with me? <laughs> they, they, they'd been there a little while. And uh, so they were you know pretty boisterous and, and carrying on. And um, this girl, Tracy, was flirting with the, with the bartender, the server behind the counter. And her girlfriend sort of ribbed her and said, you know, stop flirting. You're always flirting with the servers. And I'm hearing this and I'm going, what's up with that? And, and she started laughing. Tracy started laughing and she said, yeah, last night I was doing that. Our, our, uh, our, uh, our, we we're at the restaurant and our server was a real handsome kid. And, but he was so young, I actually told him that I have abortions that are older than you are. And I kid you not, she slapped me on the shoulder then and she she goes, well, Jim, so what do you do? (laughs) And I'm going, Lord, here it is, right? Am I ready to unpack Psalm 139, Genesis 126 and seven with Tracy? That's not where she's at. So I pull out a napkin, I grab a bar napkin, and I write S-L-E-D, along the the left edge. And I walk Tracy through something I'm gonna give you as a very good tool to talk about the value of human life from a a, uh, logical case, a secular case, if you will. So the first letter, S, is size. Next is level of development. E is environment, D is degree of dependency, size. I made the case with Tracy, and I, I submit to you, a person's size doesn't determine their value. Um, I won't take the time, but we could, we could measure and find the tallest person in this room. Now, that person is probably male, statistically, and uh, maybe even plays on the basketball team here at Cornerstone, <laughs> And on that court, that person probably has a lot of value. And in timeouts, it's like, let's get the ball to the tall guy, right? Let's, let's move it inside and let's score in the paint. But if we stood the tallest person in this room up against the shortest person in this room, does the tallest person have more value than the shortest person? Of course not. So let's talk about life in the womb because it's always a human being. It's always going to be a human being. And because it's smaller in the womb, doesn't mean it has less value. Second is L, the level of development. A person's gestational age doesn't determine its value. Um, A a two-year-old isn't less valuable than a 20-year-old. Some of you might have a niece or a nephew who's about two. That person doesn't have less value because you're older and you're in your 20s. Right? So why would a baby in the womb have less value because it just hasn't been born yet. The level of development doesn't matter. A six-week-old is uh, as valuable as a six-month-old baby in the womb. Environment. Uh, a person's location inside or outside the womb doesn't determine its value. Some of you traveled here and came into this room and you, you left uh, your dorm or apartment or whatever and came here. You don't have any any change in your value because you're in this room as opposed to another room, why would a a person, why would a human being inside the womb have less value and it's only valuable once it's been born? It is just as valuable as a pre-born human as it is a human that has been born. And then D is degree of dependency. A person's independence from their mother, medicine, or machinery doesn't mean it has more value because it doesn't... De- there are people in this room who are dependent on medication. Maybe you're diabetic or something else that, um, uh, that you're dependent on. If you don't have that, you will struggle uh, and perhaps expire if you don't have that. It doesn't mean that you have less value. So the fact that a baby is dependent on its mother for... Um, Life for growth, for nutrition and nurturing doesn't give it less value. So that's a real quick flyby of Sled. Uh, In the moments I have remaining, let's talk about how Jesus looked at life. Um, In Luke 4, there about halfway through that chapter, Jesus goes to the synagogue in his hometown. And the scroll is handed to him, he reads Isaiah 61, and we've heard this story, Uh, I am here, he reads, to pronounce a year of the Lord's favor, freedom to the captive, sight to to the blind, shackles coming off those who are held captive. And we remember that story as though they got mad about that and they wanted to throw him out of town, you remember that? If you go back and read it, that's not actually what happens next. Actually, what happens next is they say, hey, isn't this our local hometown hero? Now, I'm old enough to remember the days when Jerry Ford uh, was president of the United States, and he is our local hometown hero. And I can only imagine that people went to church or high school, played on the U of M football team, go blue, um, remembered Jerry Ford as a friend, And said, wow, now that he's president, maybe we can get somewhere. Maybe we can get a grant for this or money for the roads or build the bridge that we've, you know, let's get some favors. So in the hometown where Jesus had been rumored before he got there as being the Messiah, he reads the classic messianic text and says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they said, wow, that's awesome. Set us free from this Roman captivity. We have been looking forward to this all our lives. But that's not what he does. He corrects their thinking. Go back and read this passage. He corrects their thinking by telling two stories of highly uh, respected prophets from Israel's past. One is Elijah and the other is Elisha. Elijah um, was spared, the widow was spared because of a famine. And Jesus said there were a lot of people who died in Israel because of this famine. Not one of them was spared, except the widow in Sidor. Now, this is where you gotta go to the back of your Bible and pull out one of those maps that you don't really understand too much. But during that time, there was a boundary in the north and Sidor is outside that boundary. Jesus is saying, I didn't just come for you, I came for people outside our boundary. You guys, Jesus isn't a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not even an American. He is for people outside our regular thinking. His value for human life transcends all of those borders, and it applies to everyone on this planet. Elisha, he goes on to say, "Um, there were many who were dying and suffering from leprosy in Israel during the time of Naaman, but only Naaman was spared. Elisha told him to go dip in the water and he was cured, remember that? Well, what's the big deal about Naaman? He was a general in the Syrian army that was at war with Israel. Blew their minds and they said, that's it. We don't wanna hear it. If you're not just gonna be for us, we don't want you at all. They tried to throw him off the cliff. I love that story in an application of the sanctity of human life because it's bigger than we are. Uh, in Joshua five, you know the story where the captain of the, of the Lord's army is standing outside the camp and Joshua wants to know, you on our team or not? And what's the answer? No, I am on neither team. I am my own side. And many believe that's a, a incarnation, a, a pre-incarnate Christ. There in that scene, saying, I am my own team. Join me. Uh, I'll close with this No good talk uh, is without a C.S. Lewis quote, right? Uh, So uh, C.S. Lewis said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. The person that said to you, You are fearfully and wonderfully made, is absolutely right. You are not a mere mortal, you are valuable, inestimable value to the Lord. And this is why, for 23 years, I have been part of this organization, PRC of Grand Rapids, because of its mission to live the truth that people, all people, matter to God. So there's my email. Um, if you want to talk, I'll hang around here. Uh, if you want to send me an email, because you've got qu- some more questions about some of the things that I have gone through, and I had to go quickly, I would love to take more time with you if you are interested, okay, deal? All right.